Thank you. Okay, and we're ready with our ne next presentation here. Um, I want to introduce you to my family. Whoops. Oh, okay, there. Now that they're a little bit older than that at this point. Uh, in fact, I want to point out. I, Yeah, okay. This little gal here and this one here, when they were 12 years old, accompanied me along with others to the top of Kilimanjaro. 19,334 feet. So anyway, I want to brag about that a little bit. It was a neat experience to have family along on, on that trek. By the way, I was an old man too, so, you know, you <laughs> <laughs> Got to give me credit as well. Okay, so how many of you have heard about the term epistemology? Okay, a few. How many of you are teachers? Okay, right. What do teachers do? Teach? <laughs> They teach knowledge, right? I mean, among other things, that's not the only thing. But they teach knowledge. Okay, epistemology is your concept of knowledge and your concept of how to acquire knowledge. Okay, so if you're a teacher, have you thought about what knowledge is and how you acquire knowledge? And what are you teaching your students when you're teaching them in the classroom? You, whether you know it or not, you're teaching them an epistemology when you teach in the classroom. You have an epistemology, whether you know it or not. And your students have an epistemology, whether they know it or not. And so it's extremely important for us to understand epistemology uh, so that we can understand our own epistemology. You begin to analyze yourself when you see how others think and ask, how is it that I think? Okay, so epistemology is really the road you take. And you know, some administrators come to me and say, Ed, how, how is it possible that this person has, has accepted and is teaching in our schools theistic evolution? You know, how's that possible? Well, 30 years ago, they picked up an epistemology that took the left-hand road here that ends in theistic evolution. It's not something that happened overnight for the most part, sometimes it may, but it was a gradual process of choosing an epistemology, a concept of knowledge and a concept of how to acquire knowledge that finally ended up in theistic evolution. Uh, and so it's, it's important for us to understand and to teach our students how to think from a biblical perspective instead of from a secular perspective. And my feeling is, and I don't think this is the total answer, I think there are many, many answers. I think you folks are, are doing a wonderful job answering the questions, but why do we lose so many of our students? Well, I think one of the reasons, among others, is that we have never taught them to think biblically. And so when they go to the secular university, there's no difference between themselves and their professor. They're the way they think is identical. And so they are open to what the professor has to say 
and open to non-Christian points of view. So epistemology determines your concept of God, your universe, the world you live in, your existence, yourself, so on and so forth. It, it's the foundation of your worldview, the way you understand yourself and the world and, and the people you relate to. And when epistemology changes, your concept of self, existence, world, universe, God, etc., changes as well. So now all of us live in a secular society. We're constantly bombarded with secularism. Every time you look at television, every time you read a newspaper, uh, every time you look at something streaming on the internet, you are being indoctrinated, not just with the specific ideas that are being conveyed, but with the manner of thinking that justifies those ideas. So we seek a rock-solid foundation, and so we look to reason, to science, to math, to uh, experience, even, you know, if, depending upon your worldview, mysticism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We look for some place to have a rock-solid foundation for our theology. And so what are we really doing? We're building our house on what? on human reason instead of upon God's words. Now, that doesn't mean we don't use Scripture. In fact, if we have time, we'll, we'll see a passage later in Ellen White where she says, you know, theologians use Scripture, but because they put it in their context, in their philosophical system, they, they uh, misrepresent what Scripture is saying. And so humanism has become the foundation for all knowledge. Humanism is starting with humankind. Now, there are many different kinds of humanism, but that is kind of a, a word that'll bring many philosophical systems together. And so, humanism gets imposed upon Scripture. Okay, so what I'm going to do is an overview of the history of philosophy, theology, and biblical studies, highlighting lessons learned. And the reason I'm doing this, I don't care whether you, you remember anything about Plato or Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas or, you know, the people we're going to go over. What I care is that you, you capture the idea that their philosophical system determined their theology. And hopefully learn the lesson that we need to start with a biblical system uh, if we don't intentionally start with a biblical system, we will end up with some kind of a humanistic philosophy instead of a biblical theology. So, the biblical worldview is foundational to our understanding is where we are coming from. A biblical worldview is the rock-solid foundation that we are seeking. So, I'm starting with some presuppositions. Normally, I would have several other people with me, and we'd have three or four or five days together, but we don't have that and they aren't available. So I'm going to tell you basically what they would have told you, and I'm sure you're all in agreement with this. The Bible, God's word, came by the will of God rather than by the will of man. It's God's word given through humans, but guided by the Holy Spirit in such a way that God's word got through. And the Bible is its own interpreter. So I'm, I'm assuming these two things 
as we move forward. Now some terminology, rationalism. What's rationalism? Okay, the mind, okay, my reason. What about my reason? Is it wrong for us to think? God gave us our reason, right? Okay, he wants us to take our reason as far as we possibly can go. And he will send us the Holy Spirit to aid us so that we can go further than we could possibly go on our own. Okay? So, is rationalism good or bad? Okay, good. Rationalism is that the, the sole foundation for my understanding of the universe is my mind. So that's where I start. You're right. That's bad. Okay, well, we'll, we'll see results of that. Empiricism. What is empiricism? Scientific method. Right. Okay, so the scientific method alone is the foundation of my knowledge. And notice the alone in there. The foundation. Now, all philosophers, no matter where they are on this chart, use reason. Only rationalism make reason the foundation of knowledge. All, most philosophers use the empirical method. Only the empiricist makes it the foundation of their knowledge. You see what I'm saying? And so those of us who start with a biblical philosophy, that doesn't mean we don't use reason. It just means that scripture is the guide to reason. It doesn't mean that we don't do science. It just means that, that scripture is the guide to science. And so... Existentialism, the, the structure of human existence is the foundation, pragmatism, materialism, etcetraism, that's my word, for the fact that there are thousands of philosophical systems, uh, many of which have not yet been described. There's a philosophy for each person in the room here. Uh, so there are many different philosophical systems. So really we're talking about how do we relate to philosophical systems. Okay, so early, the early church was dominated by the philosophy or the worldview of Neoplatonism. This philosophy was inherited from Greek philosophy, primarily from Plato. Now this picture is in the Vatican. It was painted in the 16th century. Have any of you seen this picture before? Okay. You see two people in the middle there. Who are they? Oh, that'd be great if it were Peter and Paul. Plato and Aristotle. One's pointing up. Who would that be? Okay. And one's pointing down. Aristotle. Okay, very good. Now, this was in the 16th century, by the way. Imagine, this is in the Vatican in the 16th century. I don't know if there's one theologian depicted here. Does that tell you something about where the system comes from? Okay. So I'm going to use this just philosophy in general. I'm not going to use it representing that 16th century. Uh, so <laughs> Neoplatonic philosophy, the celestial perfect eternal forms uh, were the heavenly forms, and the imperfect earthly materialization of these forms were the earthly forms, and 
So uh, basically you have the idea of, of a pulpit. The eternal, unmoving idea of the pulpit. And then you have the earthly form of that pulpit, which is material, it passes away, it's, you know, it doesn't last forever. Uh, it's just a representation of the ideal of the pulpit. So the way you get knowledge is that knowledge emanates, comes from this perfect eternal form, and it makes its way down to us, and it infuses us with knowledge. So that's how we get knowledge. That's how we know things. Uh, knowledge comes to us from this eternal, rational structure of the universe. So that's quite different from the way we would think, right? I mean, for us, we get knowledge by the scientific method uh, for the most part. Okay, here, here knowledge comes from the eternal forms. And the idea of humanity is to return to the, the eternal form, to the one, uh, by the way, the one. Anyway, uh, so our goal is re to return to the perfect eternal form, the real form. Now, Neoplatonism had a major impact upon Christian philosophy, Christian theology. Uh, for example, the natural immortality of the soul. You have the imperfect earthly bodily forms the soul goes back and gets reunited with the eternal form. And what am I doing wrong? Okay, good. Okay, the soul goes back and, and gets reunited with the eternal form. So since reality was only accessible through intermediaries, so you, you know, it's not like you sit here and you study this pulpit. It, the knowledge comes through in, all these intermediaries uh, so God was also only known and approachable through intermediaries. You see how your epistemology impacts your concept of God? And so, if you want to know God, he must reveal himself through church and Mary and the saints, etc., etc. And if you want to reach back to God, if you want forgiveness or grace or whatever, you must do so through intermediaries. See the connection there between philosophy and Christian quotes, Christian thinking, how philosophy affects that. Okay, so Origen, one of the first Christian uh, theologians, uh, he was born and raised in Alexandria, a Greek city. Uh, he was actually born a, a pagan. He became converted to Christianity, but he brought with him all of the philosophical ideas of Neoplatonism. And so, Neoplatonism held a dual concept of eternal realities and their reflection in earthly forms. This influenced their understanding and interpretation of literature. So literature had a literal meaning, but it also had an allegorical meaning. So when you read a piece of literature, you read Homer or something like that, uh, it may have had some kind of a literal, real background, but primarily it had a spiritual meaning, an allegorical meaning. And so he took that method of interpretation, which came from where? Yep, Greek philosophy, very good. Came from 
Neoplatonism, and he imposed that upon scripture. And so scripture had an allegorical meaning and a literal meaning. Now actually he had four different categories, but three of them kind of can be summarized under allegorical meaning. So I'll go through this part quickly. The, po the point I want you to get see here is that, that his philosophy came with, an, with a hermeneutic. You know what hermeneutics is? How you interpret scripture, your method of interpreting scripture. So his philosophy came with a hermeneutic that coincided with the philosophy. So that when he imposed that philosophy upon scripture, the Bible became a good Neoplatonic book. You follow that? The Bible became a good Neoplatonic book. Because it, it had the philosophy of Plato imposed on it because they were using the methods of Plato. They were using the manner of thinking of Plato. Exactly. So he read it with the glasses of Neoplatonism. Ah, it's good Neoplatonism. Right, right. Now, so now Plato very clearly says that he wants the Bible to be the foundation for his theology. And I think we need to learn from this. I mean, for him, that was an absolute given. Uh, I, I should have said origin, I'm sorry. Origin, yeah, thank you. Okay, Origen said that the Bible is the foundation for my theology, but by doing this, he obscured the Bible. By using the methods of Neoplatonism to study the Bible, he obscured the Bible and made the Bible into a good Neoplatonic book instead of the Word of God. Even though he says clearly the Bible is the Word of God, he so he unconsciously took the principles of his era and he imposed those on the Bible. So lessons learned came from Alexandria, a Greek city, accepted Neoplatonic worldview, philosophy. Uh, the allegorical method of interpretation was uh, a product of Neoplatonic thinking. He used this external method and thereby imposed Neoplatonism on the Bible. Now, this sounds theoretical at this point, but when we get down, the reason I'm going through this now, when we get down to the present, we're going to find that there are new philosophies, and new philosophies are being imposed upon Scripture, and Scripture is made to fit those new philosophical systems. So by appealing to the allegorical method, study Scripture, he imposed Neoplatonic worldview upon Scripture. Scripture became a good Neoplatonic book. His intention was mission to reach people where they are. Can that be a caution for us? His intention was to reach people where they are. I mean, there are systems today that want to reach people where they are, and they do it by imbibing their culture and, quotes, acculturating the gospel. And so what they're doing is really a gospel for their culture instead of the gospel of Scripture. Okay, so Scripture became a good Neoplatonic book. His intention... Let's see. Oh, so the baptism of Christianity by pagan culture was the result. So,
to uh, kind of summarize, and this is true for the Middle Ages, which we will move on to next, but uh, basically we start on the left here with the concept of reality. You know, you look at the trees, you look at the flowers, uh, and you, you deduce a concept of reality out of that analysis, and you either impose that concept of reality on the Bible, as Origen did. So you take that concept of reality, you impose it on the Bible, and you end up with your idea of God. Or you argue directly from that concept of reality, as we'll see for the Middle Ages, and get that yields your idea of God. So in the Middle Ages, the light of Scripture was almost extinguished. The Bible, uh, the philosophical arguments for the existence of God, the Bible simply assumes the existence of God. It doesn't try to give a philosophical argument or uh, a scientific argument or something else. It just simply presents, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we use another system to prove the existence of God, who is the authority? We are. The system that we have used is the authority. Okay, and often evangelists use the argument of design to prove the existence of God and to prove the validity of the Bible. When they're doing that, what is the authority? Now, we said that it's okay to use reason, just not as the foundation, right? So it's a good argument, but when we make it the foundation of our argument, then we're misusing it and really turning the argument into God instead of accepting the God who reveals himself. Okay, so Anselm had an, ar an ar argument for the existence of God. Reason puts us in touch with the whole order of being, it has its own principles of operation. So when you start with reason, you can understand you know, the whole order of being and it has its own principles of operation. Therefore, reason gives a foundation for accepting the existence of God. So how do we know such a being as exist, God exists? By an argument that arises from a de definition of God. And I won't try to go through all of this. It'll take too much time, but I'll simply describe it for, for you. The definition is God is a being than which nothing greater can be conceived. You can't think of anything greater than this being. Okay, the question is, does that God exist? Even the fool who says in his heart, there is no God, by saying there is no God, he has the idea of God, right? Otherwise he couldn't say there is no God, okay? So everybody has in their mind the idea of God. The question is, does God exist? Well, if God doesn't exist, then I, I can think of a lesser being. Uh, I can think of you. You're a lesser being, aren't you? Okay, yeah. And do you exist? You do, okay. So you're a lesser being and you exist, which makes you greater than the being then which nothing greater can be conceived. It's a contra contradiction of, of argument. Therefore, there does exist a God uh, than which nothing greater can be conceived. You see, he's starting with the philosophical system that came from Greek thought, 
And just simply by sitting in the rocking chair, he comes up with the idea that God must exist because my reason says that God must exist. Therefore, God exists. So basically, of course, he made the human being the authority. Uh, the argument of design we started talking about. The question is, who is the designer? Uh, is it the god of pantheism, polytheism, the universe as a whole, chance, master computer, or the god of the Bible? How can we, how can we tell? What philosophical system are we going to use to tell us which one of those is God or the other thousands of possibilities for God? Now, scholasticism, again, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying that argument is not useful. I'm saying it has to be done in its context. If we're leading our believers to say, ah, oh, the argument of design points to God, therefore God exists, therefore he must have revealed himself, therefore his Bible is, the Bible is his word, we are teaching them to rely on a philosophical system instead of on a biblical system. When I was down in Australia, some of the evangelists came to us and they said, now we understand why our, our converts are not staying in the church, because we have converted them to humanism instead of to biblical thinking. And so they, some of them restructured their way of doing evangelism. Okay, scholasticism, Aristotle's understanding of the world. Uh, and Thomas Aquinas picked up on Aristotle's understanding of the world. Uh, for Thomas Aquinas, you have the Bible and you have natural law. You have the truths of nature and the Bible. Now, how do these two interrelate with one another? It's the Bible. I hope you saw that. So I worked hard. It's the Bible what? And, okay, the Bible and nature, tradition, the Pope, church councils, philosophy, etc. Can we all say that together? The Bible? Is that the way you like your students to respond? Okay, the Bible and, okay, the Bible and. Five years from now, are you going to remember the Bible and? Okay, 10 years from now, are you going to remember the Bible? That's what separates Seventh-day Adventists from other groups. Uh, well, I mean, changing the word and, but, but it's, it's a small thing, the Bible and, but yet we see where that takes us, okay? It really determines the road that we finally go on. Okay, so the, for Thomas Aquinas, the fundal, fundamental propositions of Scripture are the starting point or presupposition of his theological thinking. So he made it clear he wants to start with Scripture. Another lesson for us. We make it clear we want to start with Scripture, right? And then we start someplace else in order to prove Scripture so that we can use Scripture. Okay? So uh, for him, God gave us revelation and he gave us the natural world. So... Now, so he, he gave us, in, independent of revelation, he gave us reason, he gave us the natural world. Yeah? So you were saying the Bible and, could you explain that again? 
Yeah. Yeah, and and I tried to correct myself. Probably didn't do very well. Yeah, but but just having that little word there. When we get to the Reformation, we'll find there's a different word in there, and we should have that position. Right. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, because we, when you deal with the Bible and you have two epistemologies, the epistemology of the Bible, two concepts of knowledge and how you acquire knowledge, and the epistemology of whatever philosophy you're using. And then you combine those two together. And we'll see this is what Thomas Aquinas did. Uh, I'm going to move through this fairly quickly. I think I can illustrate it with a later. So, so basically, here's the Thomistic synthesis. You have the relation of the natural world to revelation. Truth is truth, wherever it may be found. Have you ever heard that? Truth is truth, wherever it may be found. Okay, would we want to reformulate that? Did Christ say, yeah, he didn't say, I along with the natural world, or I along with Roman thinking, or I along with some other system are the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. By the way, that I am, I'm sure you're aware, that means he's self-existent. He's not dependent on anyone else or anything else. Okay, so the truth is truth, wherever it may be found. So you start with the senses. The senses present to the mind knowledge from the natural world. So you get the data of the natural world. Reason comes in, and reason takes the data of the natural world and interprets it into a system. And reason is adequate and self-sufficient both for obtaining truth in the natural world and for acquiring limited knowledge of God in the spiritual world. So if this is all I have, if I have this, the data that's given to the senses and reason, I can understand the natural world, and I can say limited things about God, limited but true things about God. When revelation comes, notice how it neatly fits in with what you've already discovered to be true. Revelation doesn't alter the way you look at the natural world. It augments the way you look at the natural world. It brings additional knowledge, which we could not know were it not for revelation. So revelation brings additional knowledge, which coheres with that already available in the natural world. And so revelation, reason, and the natural world come from God and are therefore in harmony with one another. Does it sound like an Ellen White quotation? Okay, it does. You want to elaborate? Okay. Right. 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 Yeah. She adds one half sentence to this, which makes all the difference in the world. Revelation, reason, and the natural world come from God and are therefore in harmony with each other when studied from what? The Bible. You see the difference? See, one is making the Bible the foundation. The other is 
you have two foundations. You have Revelation, you have the Bible, and the natural world. So there's the Bible and the natural world again. Okay, so <clears throat> for him the task was integration. Have you heard the word integration before? I'm trying to get us to move from integration to biblical foundations. With integration, you have two epistemologies, one a secular epistemology, another a biblical epistemology, and you try to synthesize the two together. So it's the Bible and, rather than the Bible alone as the foundation. Now remember, the Bible alone doesn't say you don't use reason, doesn't say you don't use science. It says that the Bible is the foundation and the guide for using reason and science. Okay, so this will we'll move through this. So finally, the role of reason in theology is both dominant and determined, determinative. So the information which is given in Revelation is integrated with knowledge obtained by reason, uh, interpreted in terms of that knowledge. Revelation does not change the existing thought categories, rather it brings to conclusion the existing lines of thought, allowing reason to provide the structure for theology. You see how that's working? The reason provides the structure, provides the foundation. Revelation adds to that structure and foundation. So the message of Scripture is not only shaped by the philosophical system of thought, but in actuality its content is actually changed. And that effect of using reason as the context in which to, to structure and interpret revelation transforms the theology of Aquinas into a philosophical system rather than a biblical philosophy. So let's, let's test this and see how it works. Remember I said your epistemology determines what? Concept of God, concept of yourself, concept of the world, and so on and so forth. So let's see about his epistemology. He started with Aristotle, started with his epistemology of an empirical type of uh, epistemology. And uh, Aristotle said that, that God is the unmoved mover. Now that sounds like a pretty good place to start with God, doesn't it? God is an unmoved mover. Okay, everything that exists came from the unmoved mover. Okay, so if God is the unmoved mover and God is perfect, doesn't change, he's changeless, um, what do you do with the Old Testament when it says that God was in Christ, reckons, or rather the Old Testament when it says that God sorrows with our, sympathizes with our sorrows and griefs? Now there God is being impacted by our sorrows and griefs. What do you do with the New Testament when it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself? We have to say that's an inferior theology. Why? Because you already know that God's an unmoved mover and he can't be impacted by anything that takes place in, in the universe. That Everything emanates from him, but nothing comes back and impacts him. And so the theology that uh, the philosophy that he started with made it impossible for him to accept basic aspects of Scripture, namely that God is a personal God 
who wants to interact with us. <clears throat> so, the epistemology of Aristotle was foundational. It was used as a basis for the method in theology. I want you to notice the sequence. Remember we had this sequence with, with origin? With origin we had what? A philosophical system, Neoplatonism. We had a method that came out of that system and therefore we imposed Neoplatonism on the Bible. Okay, so here we have Aristotelianism, a different philosophical system, was used as a basis for method and theology. Theology became an expression of the philosophy of Aristotle. So, to try to illustrate the epistemology of the age, um, the mind of man is the lens in the center there, and whatever is outside gets imposed directly upon our mind. Now I know those of you who are photographers that should be turned upside down, but then it would kind of destroy the illustration, so we'll leave it right side up. But whatever you see, whatever the natural world is, you have an exact imprint that takes place on your mind, whether with Plato that comes from the eternal structure of reality that imposes meaning on our mind, or Aristotle, a more empirical method, there's an exact reproduction between what's outside of us and what's, what's in our mind. And we'll see when we come to contemporary philosophies that there's a huge change. And so in summary, uh, to the time of the Reformation, we have the Bible. Okay, thank you. Can we all say that together? The Bible? Okay, so the theology of the Middle Ages exquisitely developed the method of the integration of faith and learning. The Bible and reason, the natural world, the Pope, church councils, tradition, etc., etc. So, scholasticism built upon the rock and reason. What happens to the house when it's built on two epistemologies? Begins to crack apart. Okay, I think that's the end. I suspect you'd like a break. So let's do that. We've been through a lot of material. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.